There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 Ranch Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon we have a really interesting show tonight i know everyone has heard a lot about the alec murdoch case the national media new york times they're all weighing in on it on why was the verdict returned so quickly what was the evidence i believe there was doubt i believe that there was no doubt it was a mental illness it was privilege it was drug addiction we're going to discuss that tonight we're going to take a deep dive into this. And we have two unbelievable guests tonight. And you've seen the first one many times before. And he's straight out of the Bronx, retired NYPD sergeant and professor, lawyer, Michael Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Hey, Bill. Doing well. Thank you for having me. It's always good to have you. You're a man of reason. The audience, the fans, the subscribers, they love you. Me, they could do without, but they love you, <laughs> and I'm glad to have you on the show tonight. And tonight, another unbelievable guest tonight, and you ladies are going to love her. She's a, a lawyer. She spent 20 years as a civil litigator. She's an actress, and she's a mom of five. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show attorney Melanie Little. How are you doing tonight, hey, Melanie? Bill, thank you so much for having me. It's so great to see you, even if it's only over a computer screen. Well, it's it's great to have you. You know, we've discussed this show, and I think meant the show, this case of uh, Alec Murdoch. And it's it's taken the minds and the uh, of the news media, of John Q. Public, of people that live in South Carolina, and no one can really understand how could a father really execute his wife and his son? And it's really hard to believe. But then when you start looking at the evidence and the fact that he was a drug addicted father and also was a thief, stole between eight and $12 million, if you believe uh, what they're reporting. But more than that, he seemed like a narcissist that also had very specific mental illness. You want to comment on that, Melanie? Yeah, I mean, I think this guy had like the hat trick of, of problems or, or privileges, however you want to put it. He came from a, a life of privilege. His family ruled that southwest corner of South Carolina for close to 100 years. Uh, so he had the privilege, he had the power, uh, and he also seemed like a complete narcissist. He had no remorse, really. He showed uh, a lot of things that we'll get into, I think, that can point to some sort of mental illness. And he is an admitted drug addict in addition to a thief. Mike, same question. And the audience will rate who gives the better answer. <laughs> no, I think you're right. He's, uh, he comes from privilege. He's got this uh, feeling of, uh, like, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the word. Yeah, uh, privilege, I guess is, is the best way to say it. he's uh, from privilege. Things have come easy to for him. He had a law practice. He's had all this power from his grandfather's days all the way down to the present. But he developed a, a real sick uh, drug habit. And on the uh, in the on uh, June, you know, July 25th, uh, 19, uh, 2021, 
He'd, uh, he was a sick, desperate man looking at the end of his dynasty and being a narcissist, being very selfish, being a uh, sociopath. He did what he thought was necessary in order to try to gain some sort of diversion from the investigations that were going on to his business uh, dealings. And uh, it was the highest stakes poker game he'd ever been in his whole life. But, he, you know, it's been 20 years worth of lying and thieving and getting away with it. And, and, and in the end, thankfully, he didn't. Absolutely. I want to play a little bit of this. This gives us a really window into what happened in the courtroom. I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife, Maggie. And I would never, under any circumstances... Sorry, guys, it froze up for a second, but now with the judge responds. Hurt my son, Papa. Oh, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Thoughts, Melanie? Uh, shining a light on the opioid crisis in, in, in the South and, you know, which is already a big problem. But if this guy was taking 50, 60 pills a day, wouldn't he be dead? I, I, mean, I would think so. Hyperbole. I, I can't even believe that he testified to that. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah. You know, I think the uh, judge was fabulous throughout the entire trial. And I think in, in some way, the judge kind of offered a little bit of dignity to Alec right before he sentenced him to, you know, life behind bars by saying, you know, yeah, you know, a dad would not do that, but a, a monster hooked on drugs would do something like that. And uh, I think it's a real, as Melanie says, a real recognition of the opioid crisis we have in America. And it's not affecting, you know, poor kids in, in, a, in a small town. It's affecting uh, the wealthiest people that we have here. Absolutely. Let me play a little more of this. Let's try to figure it out. Let's bring in our guests. Joining me tonight, Dr. Robbie Ludwig, psychotherapist, host of Talking Live and the host of the Bite Side podcast. She joins us in New York. Joining us in Bay City, Michigan, Dr. William Maroney, opioid treatment provider, forensic toxicologist, medical director of Recovering Pathways, and author of American Narcan. Thank you both for being here. Uh, I want to try to figure out how we get inside the mind of this killer because the jury told us what happened. Uh, Dr. Robbie Ludwig, I look in his eyes. I look in those deep set dark eyes and I don't, I don't see a soul, but how does someone get to that place where you could take a shotgun and shoot your son in the chest and then blow his brains out and then hunt down your wife like a wild hog? You know, this was a very desperate man. What we know about men who kill their family, uh, and this is a little unusual because he left one son alive, is they may not be violent before they plan this murder, but their whole life is unraveling in front of them. And very often it's financial. So what they need to feel in charge of their lives and to feel manly is all of a sudden lost. And they will do anything in order to maintain that sense of togetherness, 
even if it means killing their family. So they love themselves and they have a plan and basically they always choose themselves first and they justify it and their brains really do operate differently. So they're not thinking the way you or I would think, oh my God, this is horrible. I, I can't believe I've done this. They're thinking I did what I needed to do. Very interesting. I mean, when you hear this coming out of a psychologist's mind, look, basically what we say, the layman, is that based on his drug addiction, he lost his soul. And she's saying that in so many ways, but it's a scientific. Let me have a continue. And they probably were thinking that they could get away with it as well. Dr. Maroney, one thing that the judge said today, he sort of attempted to give Alec Murdoch an opening. He said, maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was the monster. The monster inside of you. And that's uh, that's exactly what uh, the judge was referring to, was the drug addiction. That was the monster inside of him. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah. If he had never, if Alec uh, Murdoch never become a, a uh, drug addict, you would not have had this sort of thing. He might have robbed and stolen from people. He might have gone to jail eventually for all the felonies he committed, have been disbarred, have been uh, gone bankrupt uh, after his wife sued him for divorce. And everybody just picked apart his empire like, you know, like vultures on a, on a roadkill. Um, but uh, the fact that he became a drug addict and he did lose his soul, you and I have seen what crack could do to people on the streets of New York, how they would sell themselves for drugs. Um yeah, that's what he became. He became a monster. And uh, he could justify his actions by necessity. I need to do this. He'll he'll come to he'll have that Jesus come to Jesus moment with his soul, perhaps when he detoxes in prison in a couple of years and it'll be hell. But uh, right now he is a desperate, sick, uh, you know, um, drug addict who needed to take care of a problem. And he took care of a problem. Absolutely. Melanie, same question. I mean, his life was spiraling out of control. He was separated from his wife. Uh, he called his son, Paul, the little detective who would find bags of pills. So they knew about his addiction. Um, you know, you have to remember that his financial crimes were not really discovered until after these murders. So this guy knows all of this stuff is going to come out because three days after the murders, there was a hearing scheduled in the boat case where the plaintiff for the family of Mallory Beach wanted all kinds of financial discovery from Alec Murdoch because he was claiming he was broke. So what happened after these murders is that that hearing was actually adjourned and he did not have to do the financial discovery. Now, Melanie, are you saying that twist. the motive, the motive for this was the boating accident in which Mallory Beach was killed and I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because of that. He kills his wife and his son, Paul, who was, of course, the one driving the boat, dr boating while intoxicated when Mallory Beach lost her life. Is that what you're saying, Melanie? I think that there was such a confluence of events or such a tornado of things happening around him that, you know, knowing that this hearing was coming up, would a vigilante killing his family garner some sort of sympathy from a jury in that case? hundred percent. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyer who representing the family said that exact thing, that that because this happened, I never would have 
obtained a large verdict in this case because now there is sympathy for him for what happened to his family. Absolutely. Could that have given him a motive? I don't know. Only, you know, we don't know. Exactly. Let me, play, let me play a little bit more of the judge and we'll. Impacted his mind and warped the way that he sees the world to take him to this dark, dark place. I want to begin by stating the, um, the explanations when I use my experience in no way forgive or excuse the actions that he's taken. I'm just trying to give you some insight into the power of addiction. And the first thing we know about addiction is that 60 to 70 percent of the people who are really struggling with substance use disorder have what we call co-occurring mental illness and addiction together. So Dr. Ludwig has really exemplified that there's some kind of mental illness going on here and that the opioids end up being the steroid. It's mental illness on steroids. What we know comes from using those opioids, and this is where the judge kind of gave him an out to maybe beg for forgiveness, is that long-term opioid use is going to lead to a tremendous lack of insight. And without that insight, you don't think about things down the line. You also are impulsive. So the monster that opioids have brought out is somebody who has no insight and is impulsive but that doesn't even count his true mental illness. If you think about what he did, he has no regard about the rights or feelings of other people. He lacks empathy, remorse for any wrongdoing, and he spent a lifetime exploiting and manipulating people. That is an antisocial personality disorder. So interesting. And, uh, Melanie, I think that, you know, we talked about, and here's what this doctor put it. He said his mental illness was, in essence, a mental illness on steroids because of the opioid abuse. Your comments on that. Sure. I mean, the monster, right? Didn't we hear this whole thing during the Johnny Depp trial, too? Like, the monster would come out when I was on drugs, you know? Uh, it's, it's almost like having a split personality. Like, there's Jekyll and Hyde, you know? And you don't know which one you're going to get. But Absolutely. This guy, you know, had a lot of problems. And that was just one of them. Mike, thoughts? Yeah, I think Melanie is right about the, um, you know, the, the 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 tipping point, the the straw that broke the camel's back, the thing that really maybe, you know, went took uh, Alec Murdoch into hell was you got the boating accident. You know, Buster's been kicked out of uh, law school. Mm -hmm. You've got Alec. I'm sorry, Alex. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Paul facing manslaughter charges. You've got his. Uh, you've got all these investigations into into uh, his financial dealings. Their wife is separated. That she might have been filing for divorce. She hired a forensic accountant. Um, she's seeing. He's seeing the end of the empire. And they, that that uh, I think the the boating accident was the one that he knew he probably could not fix that one. He could fix a lot of things with guile, cunning, uh, backdoor dealings, you know, with his political power. But he couldn't fix that, and he couldn't fix Buster, and he's not going to be able to fix 
his uh, his wife divorcing him, and it's going to be costly. And he's probably knows every single dirty dealing and double crossing and thieving and lying he ever did is going to be brought out in cold hard numbers by by an accountant. So I think Melanie's right. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. He descended into hell, and he lost his soul. He absolutely, absolutely. did. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, um, and we'll, we'll 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 touch upon the New York Times op-ed later on, but I want to I don't want to go there now. I just want to go with many people that, that have watched this case. They were a little bit confused, and I think that bothered, what bothered a lot of people was the fact that the jury came back so quickly. Less than three hours, they came back with a guilty verdict. But we also have to remember the jury sat there for six weeks listening to this evidence. What they found to be even the judge thought it was almost like insurmountable evidence. Mm -hmm. But then you hear a lot of the talking heads on TV and this expert lawyer, that expert lawyer, Garagos, and all these talking head attorneys. And look, they're from the defense side of the, of the bench. And of course, they're going to see tremendous amounts of uh, doubt. There was reasonable doubt. And I feel like I'm talking about this ad nauseum when I say that there was so much evidence that was piled so high that circumstantial evidence and people sometimes de-emphasize what circumstantial evidence means. And clearly it just means from which inferences are drawn, but pile it 20 feet high. And that's a real, real strong inference. Melanie, go get it. <laughs> Look, you know, the jury was sitting there for, for 28 days, I think of testimony uh, they don't, jurors don't leave their common sense at the door when they come into a courtroom and when they come in to deliberate, okay? They've been listening to this stuff for uh, 28 days. The fact that they reached a decision so quickly does not mean anything more than they were convinced that he was a liar. It was the Snapchat video, in my opinion, that did him in, and they did not need to discuss it ad nauseum. If they came into the room and they went around the table and everybody said guilty, which, I mean, we can get into what that juror said when he went on Good Morning America. Two said not guilty. One said she didn't know. The rest said guilty. It didn't take them long to convince the other three to say he's guilty. They're done. I don't think it meant that they didn't do a thorough job. I think no, they did absolutely. a great job. I think they did too. But people, look, everyone has their, their, their opinion. They're entitled to their opinion. And you see a lot of people, you know, around the... Uh, even what we do, the YouTube channel uh, channels. And a lot of people in the chats, they think there was enough doubt as to maybe not getting a conviction in this case. Professor Mike, what do you think? You know, the uh, people like Garagos and some of the other talking heads, and like you say, they come from the orientation of a defense and they want to, you know, overanalyze every tidbit because this is what lawyers do. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of, uh, you know, uh, thought process. But for most people, they're not, they're not in law school. They don't go that way. They don't overanalyze things. They see, you know, life is in some ways very basic. You go, you love your family, you do your work, you, you know, take care of your family and friends. You go to work, you do what you have to do. You get through life. You, you know, you know, BS when you hear it, you know, when somebody's probably lying to you and to sit there and to think, you know, after 28 days that before they got the case on that last day that they hadn't already kind of been forming some opinions. Uh, Melanie's right. That Snapchat, Snapchat video 
I think was the absolute most important single bit of evidence because it made it really kind of forced him to take the stand and defend himself. And from there, it was just a slide down sliding pond. And they realized this guy's nothing but a monster, an amoral monster. Um, you know, you don't leave common sense. You don't have to twist logic into a pretzel. You, you know, the defense isn't entitled to that. They're entitled to have you listen, but they're not entitled in, to have you do mental gymnastics to the point where logic makes no common sense. And they have, these are people with common sense. You know, I just want to play devil's advocate here for a minute. And many people were disturbed. There's no murder weapon. Where are those guns, right? They're gone. There was no clothing. If he did it, how come there was no blood spatter on his clothing? Where was his clothing? Guess what? The clothing he was wearing when he was there at the, the kennels with different clothing that he showed up in later on. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. so hard to figure out? But many people discount that. Look, someone that's trying to do a crime like this, they're trying to get away with it. So he obviously, very obviously, got rid of the guns. They were his guns. They got rid of the guns, and he changed clothing. What's a, At one point, he was doing 70 miles an hour on the road to return from the house to go back to the scene. So does that, Mike, you can use your famous expression that shows what? Consciousness of guilt. Oh, my God. <laughs> you say that at nauseum too, but I love it. Does it not? Hey, from a, from a, you know, as I'm, I'm always on the cop side, the district attorney side, it's hard to think about seeing it from the other side. I try, but yeah, you know, all, driving 70 miles an hour down the road, coming back allegedly from, I think, visiting his mother or something like that, having different clothes on that, that then he was seen on the, the Snapchat video. Melanie's absolutely right. That is the absolute single most important thing that happened in this trial. It's, you know, it's, it's a tech type of thing, but it's, uh, it wasn't DNA. It wasn't, uh, like you say, the firearms, you know, not having firearms there doesn't mean uh, that, you know, you know, like, like a body, you could do, a, you could do a homicide trial without having a body. You could do a homicide trial without having the, the uh, weapon. And uh, that's okay. Sometimes, you know, people do want to think that it has to be wrapped up in a nice, neat uh you know, bow and every single, absolutely every single little bit of evidence that could possibly be found is found and presented to the jury. No, the jury just has to use their common sense. Those are his guns coming from his location. He had, he had changed his clothes and, uh, you know, and then he was uh, trying to um, in, uh, bamboozle the police by making all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, lying. And then uh, uh, it wasn't until, the uh, Paul's um, video was, uh, you know, came to came to light that he suddenly realized. I got to get up on the stand. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I want to play a little bit of this because this is so powerful. Let's watch a little bit of this. Central 717 senior security got a whiskey fox, whiskey mic, both gunshot wounds to the head. I want to let you know because of the scene, I do. I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle. I just, do you have any guns on you at all? No, sir. It's leaning okay. up against the side of my car. Okay. You're you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't. I just want to mention how premeditated is that? 
that he's trying to cover up that someone else killed his wife and mm -hmm. his son. So he came back with a gun. But doesn't that also sort of give yourself up that something happened here? He also says something really interesting uh, right at the scene, maybe right after this. He said, whoever did this thought about it for a really long time. Why would you say something like that, right? That, that's a weird thing to say. And then he tries to say something like, oh, and it must be because of the boat accident. Maybe he right, thought about it for a really long time. You know, he's already maybe, maybe he's, to... he's like, oh, yeah, well, I, I did this and I thought about it for a really long time because I brought two different guns with me. And then I, I went and changed, ditched the clothes because those clothes are missing. Those the, the, He had khakis and like a like a blue polo shirt in the uh, Snapchat video that was taken right before Paul's death. Those clothes are gone. Like he, the, he never produced those clothes. Absolutely not. And you know something, is that so hard to believe? Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son. Okay. It's bad. It's bad. Check the pulses. Yes, sir. <laughs> this is the firearm you brought from inside the house. Sir, yes, sir. I went get. This is a long story. My son was in a boat wreck a few months back. He's been getting threats. Most of it's been benign stuff we didn't take serious. Okay. Um, you know, he, he's been getting like punched. Um, I know that's somebody, I know that's what it is. Okay. When did you get home? Right, um, right when you called or did you go to the house first? Where is the house? I came to the house first. My mom has late stages Alzheimer's and my dad is in the hospital. Okay. I left. I don't know what time I can go back on my phone and tell you the exact times. Did you check? Okay. Did I check what? Did you check them? The, the, we got medical guys that are, that, that's 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 what they're going to do, okay? Uh, what are they doing? Can they hurry? They are. Yes, sir. That, that gentleman that was out here already, he's one of the battalion chiefs, okay? How did you pull up you, from back there? I went to the house, and they weren't home, which was odd. I tried to call. Okay. And then I knew they had been down here before I left to go to my mom's. Okay. And so... Uh, that is loaded. Okay. Um, you might want to unload it. But I mean, <laughs> is this the only firearm with you? This is the only one, or is there any more in the truck? I believe that's it. You think that's the only one? Okay. I'm 99%. Do you normally so have any other firearms in your vehicle? I don't, but occasionally okay. there, occasionally there's a pistol in there. Okay. Just wait right here for me for a second, okay? Interesting, right? So, Melanie, think of all the excuses he made just right there. You see you know? how he offers up his phone right away? He yes. offers up his phone. So how premeditated was this that he's offering up his phone? Because he knows that he was meticulous in the planning that maybe he left the phone at the house for a certain period of time so it wouldn't show any activity for when he maybe did the murders. So, you know, because there was a lot of testimony about how many steps he took at certain times. Um, uh, nobody offers up their phone right away like that. That, that was no, odd it, thing. But you know what else? Right? Melanie, what also struck me is how he had all of these premeditated excuses on the tip of his tongue mm -hmm. to offer up right away. Right. Professor Mike, your thoughts? 
Yeah, offering up the uh, boating accident and some, uh, you know, uh, harassment that, uh, you know, Paul had undergone and maybe some other members of the family had undergone since since the boating accident. Um, I'm not sure, you know, looking back on it, you're like, wow, when you analyze it, you know, you know hindsight's always 2020. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it, the I don't think the officer realized who was interviewing the officer was realized who interviewing was realizing that, you know, it was all probably pre prepared, pre prepared and uh, ready for, you know, enunciating at the proper time. But, uh, you know, it makes it kind of like if, if you come home and you find your, your, your spouse and your son, uh, you know, shot to death, uh, you're going to be, I think, doing a little bit more and different things than what he was doing there. You're going to be talking to that battalion chief. You're going to say, where, get the medical people, get the medical people. What can I help do to help you? That sort of thing. But to sit there and start thinking, oh, it's got to be due to the harassment. Like he just, he threw that out there, you know, like, mm-hmm. like with the phone, like Melanie said, you got the phone here. Look, I could prove this. It, you know, here, we got this excuse over here. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure he was hurting. I am sure he, he was crying inside because he did what he had to do. And what he had to do was distasteful. He had to murder uh, two of his family members to try to figure out a way out of his predicament. And I'm sure there were some real tears there, but uh, it, it seemed in retrospect, very rehearsed, not genuine. Absolutely. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on your YouTube Hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. We also have a YouTube channel members with five different levels, and you can see all the folks in the chat in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel memberships. This case, of course, is is really fascinating, and I want to I want to go sort of switch gears. Let's go to the decision since both you guys are attorneys. Let's go to the decision, which probably was fateful, and it may have not made a difference, but I think a lot of people agree having him testify was probably a big mistake. Melanie, you first. You know, I think uh, uh, lawyers are horrible witnesses because I think that lawyers think that they know more than everybody else. They think they can spin the truth. Uh, Listen, I have a feeling that this guy's attorneys did not want him to testify, and he insisted upon testifying because somehow he thought he was going to weave his way out of this tangled web that he talks about. But, you know, in my opinion, maybe there would have been reasonable doubt if he did not testify. Because by testifying, he had to admit that was him in the Snapchat video. That was his voice. He did lie to the police. If he didn't get up on the stand, I don't know. Maybe the jury would have thought maybe that's not him in the video, right? Maybe that wasn't his voice. Absolutely. You know, just for the, some of the folks in the chat that don't uh, know what occurred here, the Snapchat video that his son uh, Paul took uh, is a is a timestamp, is a very important timestamp. I think it was at 8.49, the nights of the murders, 8.49 p.m. And the they predict they were killed right around that time, anywhere between 8.49 and 9 p.m. And it became a big bone of contention of we're using electronic devices to give us timestamps on when things occurred. And for example, we referred to the New York Times op-ed, and it's just an opinion piece from someone who's just a journalist and has no 
criminal justice or investigative experience, but he's bothered by this. And if you read the New York Times op-ed, but police and investigators and lawyers, they rely on these type of timestamps all the time, whether it is a cell phone, a video camera, um, a toll booth, you know, for example, uh, a license plate reader, all of these things, welcome to the 21st century. And these are things that have made criminal investigation much easier, or at least gives police tools that they never had before. And now crimes that was, were never going to be solved are now going to get solved. And then add to that DNA and add to that genetic genealogy. And we have some really, really powerful tools because of technology. Mike Geary, I could see your mind is spinning. Yeah, the, uh, the technology is absolutely critical for law enforcement. In my, in my evidence class every fall, I always talk to my students about chronology. When there's a, a person is dead, the police want to know who they are, you know, a little bit about their life. They want, also want to know when do they get home? How, 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 what is the approximate time of death? Okay, we've got a kind of a window to work with. You know, it's not going to be exact, but we got a little bit of window. Who had access to this person? Who had motive? Who had the means? Uh, some of the th people, the suspects we might have thinking about, where were they at a particular time and date? Were they, could have they been in this location? All of this stuff is absolutely critical. License plate readers, this, all of those little things um, are important because this way you could verify whether or not someone truly was in a particular place at a particular time when they said they were. And if they're lying about it, if they're off by a few minutes, you know, it might not be a big deal. But if they're totally lying and, you know, the easy pass has them going over the George Washington Bridge, you know, through the toll plaza when they said they were in Tennessee. Well, you know, there's, there's a problem there. Uh, we this is good stuff. We, you know, we're using te the technology not to convict someone, but it's circumstantial evidence. It's additional circumstantial evidence. And it is not subject to human emotions. It's just mechanical. It's like DNA. And it just speaks to, um, you know, whether or not it's it's verifying what somebody has said or what somebody is is um, claiming to have done in the past. And it's additional information for the uh, jury to uh, consider. It's fantastic. I don't see a downside to it. Absolutely. Karen Kennedy, thank you. Saying on the 9-11 call, hey, my son and, and my wife are shot very badly. It's such a strange thing to say. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. When I listened to that 911 tape, I was like, how is that? They're shot badly. No, they're dead. Your son's head was clean off, shot right, you know, blew it right off his shoulders. And his wife was not only shot multiple times, but shot in the back of the head. He he wanted to make sure that they were dead. Melanie. I mean, yeah, that guy said a lot of strange things. I totally agree with uh, with with Karen. But, um, you know, the biggest problem was his his lying about ever being at the scene. You know, I mean, as a police detective, wouldn't that be such an important thing for you to know? Because if he lied about being there an hour before he called 911 and he didn't do it, the killers couldn't have gone far, right? Wouldn't that be so important to your investigation as a detective? Absolutely. How about the fact that he threw Maggie's cell phone? He took the cell phone from the scene and threw it out of his car along the side of the road. I mean, that is also a premeditated action 
of a killer trying to divert attention to another area, trying to make it look like someone else did this. Mike? Yeah. And remember, too, also take it into context. A little while later, he's subjected to a possible assassination attempt while he's fixing his tire on the oh. side of the road. Um, uh, you know, a bizarre, you know, uh, group of happenings that is totally, you know, destroying his family. It, how, how, how could it possibly be coincidental that as he's that somebody knew that his son and daughter were there. They, they're assassins. They go to their place without their own firearms. They kill your beloved and your son. And then, you know, they, they leave, uh, but they take the phone, but then they, but then they throw it in the woods and then they keep going down the road. And then like 48 hours later, 72 hours later, somebody tries to murder you. It's, it's too many odd things for people to say, Wow, you know, there's something reasonable explanations for all of these things. Absolutely not. There's no reasonable explanation for all of these things. There is only one kind of real explanation, and that is this person is trying to cover his tracks and to uh, man manipulate the system. That's what he does. On, on the screen, uh, on the screen right now, of course, to the left is Alec Murdoch, and to the right is his cousin, cousin who Eddie. he hired. Yeah, he, he hired his cousin Eddie. Yeah, who he hired to, <laughs> cousin he Eddie is drug dealer. <laughs> but he hired him to shoot him in the head so that his son Buster would get his life insurance policy, which was purported to be twelve million dollars. But cousin Eddie, you, you saw his face. This isn't a man that you should hire to do anything, right? <laughs> and uh, he obviously screwed it up. And Alec used the excuse that. His car had a flat, but he has the type of tires on his car that don't go flat even when they're oh, damaged. That's right. So you could drive another 50 miles to get it fixed. Then, mysteriously, a helicopter picks him up from the scene. How many of, how many of you guys have had a helicopter pick you up from the scene <laughs> when, you, when you needed it? And yeah. took him to a hospital that was out of state so that he couldn't be interviewed. He was fleeing the police because he didn't want to be interviewed. And then immediately entered drug rehab. And Cousin Eddie was never called to testify, right? No, Cousin Eddie's no. in jail. He's sitting in jail for, you know, these financial schemes because apparently Alec Murdoch gave him about, I don't know how many millions of dollars in checks that he cashed and he was dealing drugs and uh, guy's a loose cannon. Nobody wanted him to testify because I don't think anybody knew what he was going to say. No, absolutely not. Let me play a little of the prosecutor here. And uh... no one who thought they were close to this man knew who he really was. And your honor, that's chilling. And I've looked in his eyes and he liked to stare me down as he would walk by me during this trial. And I could see the real Alex Murdoch when he looked at me. Mr. Waters, thanks for joining us. Um, we just heard you say that you knew Alec Murdoch was the killer as soon as you looked into his eyes. When you heard him today, continuing to declare his innocence. I'm wondering what went through your mind. Uh, nothing more than the same. I think after he said. You, you know, the amazing thing here, I just want to raise a point is that um, the, there was so much longitude given to the prosecutor to ask questions. And I would in a New York courtroom, if the prosecutor said, 
he tried to stare me down. The the defense was objection, Your Honor, objection. It just pure speculation, right? But there was so much latitude in given in this case, even with Alec uh, Murdoch, he was allowed to tell long stories. It wasn't the prosecutor asking yes or no questions and trying to pull the narrative out of him. It was Alec Murdoch telling long stories and being allowed to do so. Come on, guys. What you yeah, I mean, that really? would have been up to the to the prosecutor to say, you know, the answer is yes and no. Enough. You didn't answer my question. Yes or no, Mr. Murdoch. I think it was a strategy because he knew the longer this guy talked, the more hot water he was going to get himself in. He, was, he would open a can of worms every time he opened his mouth. You know, Melanie, I was always taught when you testify – do not go on long, long stories. Give very short, succinct mm -hmm. answers because then they have to pull the information. You're going to hang yourself. You're going to say something right. wrong if you just run at the mouth. And we were taught that as cops. Mm -hmm. Don't Give volunteer what, anything. Right. Don't volunteer. <laughs> exactly. Answer just yes no, answer the yes question. No. That's exactly right. Answer the question because your, your mouth is going to get you in trouble. Professor Mike. Oh, yeah. I remember my very first trial that I was in and I was on uh, the uh, being cross-examined by the uh, defense attorney and he started firing, um, you know, leading questions at me. And he goes, yes or no. And I and I and I, I fumbled and I looked at the judge. The judge must have laughed because I was, I was like 22 years old. I said to the judge, you know, your honor, I can't answer this question without explaining it. And the judge like smiled. He goes, Officer Geary, do the best you can if the. Uh, if the prosecutor wants to, you know, um, you know, redirect after the defense attorney is over, uh, you know, he will. And then you can explain yourself then. But do the best you can. I was shocked. I had no idea that you could actually, you know, pin somebody to to an answer without offering an explanation. And I think Molly's right. We talked about this the other day in a, in a, in a, in a way, a different uh, legal culture down south maybe it was just a little bit more of a gentleman's game rather than this tough courtroom in new york letting him go on he just seemed addled by his inability to actually give a decent answer and he always seemed evasive uh answering question with almost like a question like i'm not sure what is it you want me to say it was kind of a strange thing but melanie's right he hung himself. Give him enough rope, he hanged himself. You're 100% right. And I was a little taken aback by the latitude that they did give him. And also the fact that when questions were asked by the prosecutor, the, the defense sat there and didn't object. Oh, there was almost no objections because how can they object to the prosecutor's question when the person testifying is like reading the Gettysburg Address, you know? <laughs> That's true. 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 Your thoughts, Melanie. He also, you know, listen, this guy is like, uh, you know, one of the things about a classic narcissist is that they use a lot of word salad. They call it word salad. So whenever uh, you ask them a question, they start picking apart at the semantics, you know, so they'd ask him a question and he would say things like, well, Mr. Waters, you know, there's a lot of things that I agree in your sentence, but there's a lot of things that I don't agree with in your sentence. And what is the meaning of this word? And what is the meaning of that word? And he, it was meant to just confuse everyone, I think. So and Melody, we, we spoke before, and one of the things, the number one things you learn about deception is when someone's asked a question and they repeat the question, you know they're lying because they're, they're just time. biding time to think about what they're going to say. 
And that is like, you know, investigation 101. You ask someone a question, oh, well, where was I on Monday? <laughs> yeah, was that so was that so hard? Why did you repeat that? Well, because I'm thinking of the lie I'm going to tell, right? Oh, yeah. Professor Mike. Yeah, you, you know, being, uh, I guess, being an attorney, but also being a cop, you know, there's certain professions where you come across a lot of liars and you can you can just smell the lie right away. And you're like, OK, this person is not going to answer the question. If it's a yes or no question, it's like, uh, I don't know um, if it's you ask them to explain something. They say no. Like, I love it when you ask somebody to explain something about what what crime they may have committed or, or what crime they may have witnessed. And it's no. It's like, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why are you answering a different question than I'm asking you? Yeah, we're, we're pretty good at picking up the BS. And uh, it, he didn't fool, I don't think. I don't think he convinced anybody in that jury. I don't, uh, I remember we were just looking at a quick uh, few, a little while ago, we were showing uh, the very beginning of the show here and he was talking to the judge. And in the background, you could see his son, Buster. And, you know, I think Buster too probably knew his dad was lying. And I think no one in that courtroom believed anything he was saying that you, you've got a good BS meter in, in your head, common sense. But, you know, Mike and Melanie, I think that Buster has issues, too. You know, he's in the courtroom making all kinds of faces. How old is that guy? You know, he's like 23, 24 years old. I mean, he's dead doing this. Six? You know, like, what, what did, did that yeah. help his father's cause? It sort of, sort of showed to me that the whole family has no respect for the law, and they think that they can get away with things that other people just can't. I mean, he should have been in the courtroom audience if he was there to support his father, acting like a normal human being, not making faces and giving the the finger, the accident, the accidental finger to everybody, you know? There's never been any ramifications for any of these people's behavior, you know, and that becomes a pattern, you know, when you, when you get away with stuff your whole life, you just think you're always going to get away with stuff, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, there's rumblings about uh, 2015 murder, killing, homicide. Yeah, we're gonna, you know, Melanie, we're going we're gonna to get to all of those things. Oh, the, okay. the, uh, but uh, girl interrupted. If I had not seen the data, it was harder for me to pick up on his guilt. But then again, I couldn't fathom him doing this to his child and talking about his brain lying there next to his body. Yeah, like, you know something? When you go to murder scenes and you see the horror of what murder is, it is sometimes hard to believe. I, I always remember this case when I was in the 2-3 squad on 100th Street and 1st Avenue. A brother shot his brother in the head over the corner, over the drugs, selling drugs on that corner. And I couldn't believe his brother did it. Like people from the neighborhood actually told us in confidence, it's his brother so-and-so. And I was sort of like, well, I don't know, shocked is the right word to use, but surprised that a brother so easily just shot his brother in the head and killed him on a corner over some drugs. Just And Mike, I'm sure you've seen that same thing or some similar things throughout yeah. your police career. Uh, people beating, drug addicts beating up their mother for money when the mother refuses to give them any more money after they've stolen and lied and thieved to their mother and they can't even hold down a job. They can't have any place to live. So the mother in their 35 years old, the mother lets them come back and live in her apartment and they uh, beat her up for money. You know, 
you you lose your soul. It, it's it's a terrible thing uh, for 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 money and for drugs. Yeah, yeah. It, you, there's no limit to the depravity at all. None. And addicts lie, right? I mean, that's addicts lie. That's it. Yep. Cheat Absolutely. and steal, right? To get whatever they want. And yeah, it's a horrifying thing that any father would kill their child and their wife, but it happens all the time, right? Yeah, right. absolutely. So let's go, Melanie. We, we now can get to what you wanted to talk about. In 2015, a young man named Stephen Smith, now they believe, was murdered in a hit-and-run accident. And specifically, Buster has been named as a suspect in that case. And the case was closed as just a hit and run with nothing. Now there's more investigation. There's possibly this case can now be treated as a homicide. Melanie? I don't know a lot about the forensics in this case. Maybe you guys know more than I do, but I think that Buster did have ties to this young man. And I think there may have been some sort of relationship between the two. And I, from what I'm reading, it seems like the, the homicide was committed in another place. And then the body was brought to the road where it was only a couple of miles away from Moselle, right? Which right. was the Murdoch yes. hunting property. Um, whether- and supposedly when SLED responded to the homicide scene, they mentioned that they found evidence implicating of the murder in 2015 of Stephen Smith. So we haven't heard any more from SLED. That, and SLED stands for South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. They're the investigative body at the state level of, of uh, for South Carolina. And they mentioned that. So let's just move on. We'll get back to that. In 2018, a housekeeper named Gloria Satterfield either fell or was pushed or was accidentally somehow wound up falling down the stairs. And a couple of weeks later, she died from her injuries. A, a lawsuit was filed against Alec Murdoch by his friend who was in essence suing him, his insurance, on behalf of Gloria Satterfield's family. The case was settled for $4 million. Gloria Satterfield had two sons. Alec Murdoch stole all $4 million from that case. But the fugaziness, and I'll use that New York word, fugaziness uh, of the case was that how does your friend sue you and you're totally a cooperative person getting sued because your intention is to steal the money if you win. The only way that's done is the power and the corruption of the Murdoch law firm. Mike. Yeah, he's. this wasn't the first scheme he pulled off. You know, you and I think this is absolutely straight, bizarre. And, you know, God forbid somebody gets hurt, uh, uh, you know, at a barbecue on our front lawn. They twist their ankle. We're worried about our health, our, our uh, homeowner's insurance. This guy is a, li- a liar, a schemer, a thief. He's looking for every single possible angle and every single incident. And uh, yeah, that was a good one. He got the $4 million check instead of putting it in his, in his escrow account and then, you know, giving it over to the Satterfield's family. Nope. He takes it and he uh, puts into another, has a deposit into another account and he uses that. Every single opportunity that he could see to finance his, uh, his lifestyle and his habits you know he did uh it's it's a non-stop um you know get ga- he was gambling constantly on this sort of thing uh how much can i get away with 
at every single opportunity was money in his in his pocket. It was crazy. Absolutely. Ronnie Tear, it was said she tripped over the dogs. Well, who's reporting that? Alec Murdoch. Right. Yeah. I know he didn't push it down the stairs, you know, and uh, you're right. I know that, Ronnie, but I don't buy that. You know, I'm thinking that uh, there's something more nefarious to this. Well, here's Let's what I mean. Here's what happened. She, she. Uh, I think Alec was was not there when it happened. I, I think that Maggie and either Paul or Buster was at the house when it happened. But he basically said that these people were like family to him. That she had worked for the family for something like 20 years. I think she raised him, or uh, and um, he was the her sons were like family. So you know, he said to the sons, "Listen, you know, I, I have all this insurance. I think you should sue me, but I can't sue myself. So go to my buddy." And my buddy will file the case against me. And I'm just going to admit liability. I'm just going to say, yeah, she tripped over the dogs. It was all my fault. So that the insurance company settles quickly with you. We don't have to go through discovery or depositions or a trial or anything. I'm just going to admit liability. You'll get paid. I think he did give them a little bit of the money so that it would, you know, set them, you know, off on their way. And he took the rest. But Melody, doesn't insurance companies have their own attorneys and investigators mm -hmm. that do an investigation, especially for a $4 million sure. lawsuit? Sure, but if you tell your insurance company, listen, it's all my fault. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna testify any differently. I'm not gonna say it wasn't my fault. It's a negligence case, you know. It's a trip and fall case. It was not a criminal right. case. He accepted full liability and it settled quickly. Maybe he needed the money quickly. Absolutely. So let's go to 2019, and that is the year and the date, February 2019, of the boating accident. We just hear it. That's where Mallory Beach lost her life. And there's so much wrongdoing in this case that it's not even funny that Paul Murdoch, who later will become the victim of the murder, he's driving a boat in which everyone had been drinking all day at some clam festival or oyster festival. I think oyster. I shouldn't say clam festival. An oyster festival. They'd been drinking all day. Now it gets dark. They decide, or Paul decides, with the other four or five occupants of the boat, let's stop at this bar. Let's have one more nightcap. And they're like, no, 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 no. You, it's dark. You're already drunk. Don't do that. Don't do that. First of all, he wasn't even old enough to drink because the bar they stopped at was also sued in the lawsuit uh, after this case. He gets in the boat. If anyone has ever or been on the water at night, if you want to know what pitch black is, go on the water at nighttime. You can't see anything, you know. So what does he do? He crashes into a bridge abutment. And just about everyone on the boat winds up in the water. Mallory Beach winds up in the water. Her body's not recovered for five days. If we believe this, this is supposedly the motive for the murders, the lawsuit filed against Paul Murdoch. Mel Melanie, thoughts? What a devastating tragedy for, for the family, for all the families involved. I mean, um, you know, this kid was facing three felonies and the charges were dropped after he was killed, Paul. Um, do I think that that was the motive for Alec killing them? No, I think maybe, you know, maybe he wanted sympathy and that would put off the hearing of the financial disclosure that would then uncover all of these financial crimes that we learned about later. But he also showed up to the hospital after this boating accident with his badge or whatever it was hanging out of his pocket and stopped the investigation right there. 
from what I understand. Nobody was given a field sobriety test. They did not even get uh, the blood alcohol content from Paul until several hours later. And when they finally did get his blood, it was three times the legal limit. It was something like 0.286. Horrifying. But that shows you the power Mm -hmm. that that family had. And he, in fact, did go to the hospital and was telling the other witnesses not to talk to the police. Mm -hmm. And he used his power and his badge to get into the hospital and get into their rooms. And it also speaks to the power of the Murdoch law firm. Mike. Yeah, the uh, um, he also was using, I think, his own private vehicle, and he still had his, a police light on top of it. He was using that too. Um, at one point, when they were still looking for poor Miss uh, Beach's uh, body, they were doing some sort of. Uh, they had like uh, a number of um, scuba divers in the water, a number of boats, and they were looking for her body. Um, her parents came down to the dock uh, right by the water. Where they were, where this headquarters was for the supervision of this of the search, and the the officers there said, uh, "You can't come any farther. We have a, you know, we have this little crime scene tape." Well, they said, "Okay." They stood aside. They're like, "It's our daughter," but you know, I'm sorry, you got to stand aside. They stood aside, and then lo and behold, Alec Baldwin comes with his car with Maggie in the car, and the two of them are let right on through. All How did way. Alec Baldwin show up? Yeah, I'm like, Alec Baldwin? You know how Alec many times Murdoch. I almost said that tonight? Let's talk though, about that right? case next time. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, Alec Murdoch. Um, yeah, so it just shows the, the lasting power uh, up until the absolute very end that this family had. And uh, it was used whenever they needed to use it to clear um, their sons of any wrongdoing whenever they got into trouble. Absolutely. It was hard to believe the towering, lean, somber man who was paraded into this South Carolina courtroom for the past six weeks and was bold enough to testify in his own defense. I didn't shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever. Is the same person as this heavyset, jovial-looking dad, smiling next to his wife and two sons a few years ago. The question remains, who is Alec Murdoch? Guilty verdict. The jury's answer on Thursday, after just three hours of deliberations, he's a double murderer, guilty of shooting to death his wife Maggie and younger son Paul at the family's estate in June of 2021. Judge Clifton Newman, who has known Murdoch for years, told the jury he agreed with the verdict. It might not have been you. It might have been. And uh, the monster you become. The irony in seeing Murdoch in a jail jumpsuit handcuffed is that the 54-year-old once tried cases in this very courtroom as a civil lawyer. He hailed from the Murdoch family dynasty, which wielded power and influence over South Carolina's low country for a century. Prosecutor Creighton Waters. It doesn't matter who your family is, how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. From the get-go, prosecutors painted Murdoch as a manipulator. Do you recognize those documents? Who conned clients and friends out of millions of dollars for years. I can say I did wrong. I stole money that wasn't mine, and I shouldn't have done it. 
Prosecutors argued he killed his wife and son in an attempt to distract from those alleged financial crimes. Those crimes were about to be uncovered after Paul Murdaugh was charged with boating under the influence in a crash in 2019 that killed 19-year-old Mallory Beach. I did not tell them that I went to the kennel. Here's where it all unraveled. Murdahl told police it was only after his wife and son were murdered that he went to the dog kennels on his estate where the shooting happened. He claimed he found the bodies later after visiting his ill mother. I knew they had been down here before I left to go to my mom. But prosecutors had a mountain of circumstantial evidence centered on his cell phone along with those of Maggie and Paul. Cell records led them to believe Maggie and Paul were shot to death at 8.49 p.m. That's when their phones locked for the final time. Prosecutor Waters zeroed in on four minutes just after that, when Murdahl's phone logged 283 steps. So what, what were you so busy doing? Going to the bathroom? No, I don't, I don't think that I get on a treadmill? went to the bathroom. No, I didn't get on a treadmill. Jogging place? No, nope, I didn't jog in place. No, sir, I did not do jumping jacks. But it was this video captured on Paul's cell phone at 8.44 p.m., minutes before investigators believed the murders happened, that caught Murdahl in a bold-faced lie. Witnesses testified that voice was Alec. Ultimately, he admitted he'd lied. Were you, in fact, at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. Did you continue lying after that night? Did you not? But once I lied, I continued to lie. Yes, sir. Why? You know, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But once I told the lie, and I told my family, I, I had to keep lying. Murdaugh blamed his lies on a 20-year secret opioid addiction. He says he took up to 60 pills a day. It was Murdahl's own choice to testify. Prosecutor Waters believes he was his own worst enemy. Do you think Alex testifying helped you? Oh, absolutely. I started out by getting him talking. I intentionally left pauses because he couldn't help himself. He would start talking again. And the more he did that, the more he looked that jury in the eye, the more he kept hanging himself and kept telling lies. A portrait of Murdahl's grandfather in his day, a powerful attorney, hung in the courthouse until the judge took it down for the trial. Now, the enduring portrait of Alec Murdahl might be this one. That fiery red hair shaved off by jailers, preparing to spend the rest of his life in prison. Amazing, right? And we had spoke about, you know, how powerful the electronic evidence is, and that's uh, what we referred to the New York Times op-ed where the author felt that uh, it shouldn't have been relied on that much by the jury. But he wasn't sitting in that jury, nor is he an expert on any type of evidence. So we, I think we as law enforcement and prosecutors and even the defense, they know how valuable and how accurate electronic evidence is. Melanie. Listen, anybody who thinks they have any expectation of privacy in this world anymore is just completely, you know, mistaken. There are cameras on every corner. Your cell phone is tracking everything you do. Um, the I won't say the name of it, but that device that's in my bedroom, if I say the name, will start doing whatever I want it to do and is constantly maybe listening to me. 
uh, there is no privacy anymore. So that's just a fact. You know, Melanie, I mentioned when I introduced you that you have five kids. Mm-hmm. Is there any any one of them does not have a cell phone? Oh, every single one has a cell phone. Of course. Uh, just of course it shows do. you our culture. And, and I have you know, find, my, find my friend on there. I know where all of them are at all times. Not like when we right. were kids, right? We had to and find a pay phone to call home. It's this is the world. world. Yeah, this is the world we live in now. So when you talk about electronic evidence, it's just so, so powerful, even though they use that word circumstantial. It still is tremendously powerful. Let me just go to a quick commercial, guys, and we'll be right back. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York City area, Joe Murray's your man. He's a retired NYPD police officer, and he's an outstanding defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray is a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, and we really appreciate him. But again, if you're in the New York City metropolitan area, you need a good, great defense attorney, Joe's your man. So, you know, it, it was interesting to hear the prosecutor say, oh, yes, I was very happy that he testified. And in fact, when I asked questions, I left pauses, basically what we spoke about before, so he could hang himself. And he did. Mike. Yeah, he was his own worst enemy. This uh, feeling that he'd gotten away with it so long for for many, many years, lying, thieving, probably perjured himself many times as an attorney in, in cases. He uh, got away with it. He thought he could get away with it again. And uh, you know what? If this case had happened, if, if the homicides had happened 20 years earlier, when you know when not everyone had cell phones and the technology was really in its absolute infancy, he would have probably gotten away with this crime. Um, but... Uh, Thankfully, uh, we have the technology, which is really strong circumstantial evidence, and the, uh, it allows the jury, and in this case, to do correctly, to uh, judge him um, as, a, uh, as a murderer. And so that's, that's the saving grace of everything is that technology made possible the solving of a double homicide. Absolutely. Uh, Johnny Mnemonic. Y'all really think that guy shot his firstborn adult son? It kind of don't make sense unless he's a damn demon. Well, that's what the judge indicated, that he was a damn demon through his drug addiction. And that the judge even said, maybe it wasn't you that shot and killed him. Maybe it was the monster that you've become from your drug addiction. Melanie. Listen, also, yeah, the guy, maybe he's pure evil. Maybe like, you know, he hired cousin Eddie to kill him. Okay. Even if he wasn't the trigger man, couldn't it reasonably follow that maybe he hired somebody to come kill them and he was there? I mean, there's so many different possibilities. But at the end of the day, the jury decided what the jury decided. But I don't think, you know, everybody who lives in that county had read the stories, even though Cousin Eddie didn't testify, that he allegedly hired this guy to come and kill him. Who's to say he didn't do it a couple of months earlier, you know, on the night of these murders? You know, cousin cousin Eddie reminds me of the old crazy Eddie, and who was the electronics guy years ago uh, in New York City. But yeah, there's there's cousin Eddie on the screen. Um, Yeah, just you're right, Um, Lizzie Herzberger. Thank you so much for the 1999 super sticker, guys. If you don't know, Lizzie Herzberger 
has a book out called Behind the Blue Curtain. And she, in this book, she tells a story of sex abuse and rape in the Amish community. And she's a totally heroic figure. She's testified at numerous trials that have put away uh, Amish rapists within different communities than her own. But also, she was one of the only people that came forward in her Amish community uh, and put away. It's part of the Amish culture, believe it or not, this whole rape culture. And uh, Lizzie Herzberger is a modern, uh, really a modern hero that stepped forward. And I would uh, say to everyone, uh, if you haven't read her book, Behind the Blue Curtain, you can get it on Amazon. And as I said, Lizzie Herzberger is definitely uh, an American hero with uh, what she did coming forward to this. I'd also like to just um, uh, reach out to uh, the Gabby Cabby, Andy the Gabby Cabby from Great Britain, who's been a big uh, supporter of Police Off the Cuff. And Andy the Gabby Cabby has his own podcast, and I would love you guys to support Andy the Gabby Cabby also. Yeah, guys, th this was not – look, this case really highlights power, corruption, money, uh, entitlement really. And like this family, as you could see, they went back over a century to the great grandfather who was the, the solicitor general of this area of South Carolina, which is the equivalent of our district attorney. And for years, this family ran the district attorney's office. You heard the judge pulled down the picture of Alec Murdoch's grandfather, who was the at that time, the longest serving district attorney in the nation. So you know the power that they wielded. So you also know that the community was terrified over speaking out against the Murdoch family because they were so powerful. Apparently, journalists have pulled people off the street and tried to get a statement. They go, oh, I'm not talking anything against the Murdoch family, you know, because they know how powerful and the power that they wielded in that community. This is a very sad case. And apparently, you know, it's not going to be over as far as there will be appeals. Undoubtedly. His Southern lawyers, they're already concocting an appeal. Um, people will argue that too much about the financial crimes was allowed in. The judge should have uh, excluded that from the case. Melanie, your thoughts on that? You know, the question is going to be, I think, you know, would that have made a difference, you know, in the jury's verdict? And if the jury says, listen, we convicted him on the lie about not being at the scene of the murder and he didn't change his story until he got up on the stand last week, you know, maybe it's not reversible error. But I think there's definitely going to be an appeal filed in the next week. Absolutely. Mike, your thoughts on the same thing? Oh, yeah. No, there's going to be a number of grounds. They're going to look at, you know, does the uh, weight of the evidence support the finding of guilt, um, the financial crimes? Uh, one of the things about the financial crimes is the uh, judge, before he decided to allow any sort of information about the uh, finances, uh, had a hearing outside of the uh, jury's presence where they where they talked about this and they went over it. And he decided that goes to, that went to a uh, state of mind. And uh, so that was that was a good thing. Uh would they, I think Melanie's right, would they have convicted him without it? If That video, that Snapchat video and his lying, I think did him in. Uh, the other stuff about all, all the other lying and cheating and all of the, uh, um, the financial issues, uh, that didn't help at all. 
but absolutely the one crucial thing was that Snapchat video. And so therefore um, they had absolutely uh, good reason to uh, vote the way they did. I don't think it's going to be a successful appeal. You're not entitled to a perfect trial. You're entitled to a fair trial. And the judge was absolutely fantastic and even handed. And uh, yeah, I don't see reversible error in this whatsoever either. I, I don't either, but I'm not an attorney like you guys. Max Asina, thank you for the 999 super sticker. This, you know, if anything, this was a tremendously interesting case. Uh, let me just pull this up. Denise Mugrabi, someone mentioned that perhaps Alex called Cousin Eddie to where he was because he was probably going to kill Eddie and then frame him for the murders. It definitely could be possible. Well, you know, we talk about this case. Uh, there's already been a Netflix documentary on this case. There's been several other Hello. documentaries yeah. on this case. Yeah. And as like a Netflix series or an HBO series, we've said this before. Writers could not make stuff up like this. It's the, the old expression, truth is stranger than fiction. And that is no doubt in this case. Truth is much stranger than fiction. And the truth in this case, you cannot believe it. It just melody. What, what's your thoughts? You Maybe they'll give you a part in this uh, HBO yeah, series. Right. Man. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Truth is stranger than fiction. You just can't make this stuff up. And um you know, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder, which is why nobody can believe it, because everybody likes things, you know, wrapped up in an hour. You know, everybody who's watching Dick Wolf shows for the past 20 years just wants everything solved in an hour and we're done and we're out and we know what happened. And I think there's still a lot more to this story and this family that we don't know and that will come out. Absolutely. You know, that's why, you know, everyone, uh, I'm not everyone, but a lot of people were concerned that the jury wasn't thorough enough in coming down with a verdict in less than three hours. I mean, is there anything written that says, oh, you must, even though you reached a verdict, you should wait more hours so people will be satisfied that you were thorough and complete and methodical? Is there anywhere it says that, Professor Mike? No, there's nowhere that says it. Um, I can only think of one case from, and that was from like maybe 35 years ago where a judge set aside a jury's verdict in a homicide case just once, um, you know, that, that nobody wants the sac the jury, the jury's decision and their deliberations. It's, it's confidential and it's sacrosanct and it's almost really never, uh, able, you're, are you able to, uh, attack it and get a mistrial and uh, start all over again? Absolutely. Lizzie Hirschberger, Agree that the Snapchat video was crucial in the trial. Without that, I'm not sure what the outcome would have been. You know, Lizzie, I agree with you. I think that was such powerful. It was such a powerful video because he lied about it. And it took the prosecution, apparently, with the FBI working on it, took them a year to recover that. They had to get past security and the phone and all that other stuff. But once they did... And I'll say, you know, I use the term smoking gun and people don't like that term, but it was a powerful, powerful piece of evidence that because you know why? He lied about it. He lied that he was never on the scene. Now what does he do? He has to amend his lie and tell a new lie to fit the new evidence because they got that evidence in discovery. Now his lawyers are like, oh, shit, Alec, look at this. What are we going to do now? You know? Melanie, your thoughts? What a tangled web we weave. 
That's right. <laughs> right? I mean, without that video, it, the jury could have believed he wasn't at the scene, right? Smoking gun. Yeah. It is the smoking gun. I totally agree with you. Yeah, and, you know, people don't like when you use that because I, I agree, Melanie, it was the smoking gun, but there was 20 feet high of circumstantial evidence besides that piece of evidence. And without all the rest of the circumstantial evidence, I don't know if that smoking gun Snapchat video would have been the smoking gun. And I brought this up, and again, I'm not an attorney, you guys are. The standard of reasonableness and beyond a reasonable doubt, that reasonableness is, is acquired and it's piled up just like the circumstantial evidence. And what is reasonable to the jury is, and I'm going to use a legal word, and you guys will say, hey, you were listening in class, totality of circumstances. And the totality of the evidence is what this jury weighed in coming back with the guilty verdict. Professor Mike, I can see the, the gears in your brain are moving. <laughs> the jury was, you know, from day one, if, and, uh, you know, witness one for the prosecution in uh, coming on board and, and, and swearing under oath and giving their testimony. The jury's weighing everything from day one. And uh, they don't wait. We're not machines. We don't turn off our brains and our reasoning ability until the trial's over. We're thinking about everything. Who do we, what uh, witness seems to be more exact? Who seems more uh, reliable? Uh, is that, you know, forensic evidence, fingerprints, photographs, whatever it is, you know, is it reliable? Um, and so by the time you get to the uh, end of the trial, they've already got a firm grasp of, 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 of the issues. And, um, they did a fabulous job in this case and uh they weigh it's remember the the jury is what we call in law they're the trier of fact they determine what ultimately what they believe actually happened and hearing from both sides and so ultimately they decided as as triers of fact that indeed he was there he lied and he only lied because he did it and so plain and simple and but but Mike, you know something you're right, and I agree with you, and I think Melanie agrees with you, and many people agree with you. But there are those that say, "Oh, they didn't recover the guns. They did not recover the blood spattered shirt. They did not recover the physical evidence. His DNA, of course, was on the bodies because he checked their pulse. How convenient that he checked their pulse after he blew their heads off. You know, like he was covering his ass. You know." Mm -hmm. And all of this was premeditated. Karen Kennedy, thank you so much for the 999 super sticker. And thank all you guys tonight, our, our channel members, our YouTube members, our Patreon members, and uh, the, the whole Police Off the Cuff family. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Um, it's, it's, this is a fascinating case. And I'm sure we haven't, of course, now he has 99 or 100 financial crimes cases. So, I mean, in a way, does the state have to try it? Because maybe for a civil reasons, but he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. He got two life sentences. So does it make sense for the state to go to the expense of trying these additional cases when he can't be punished any further? He's already Melody? confessed. He's already confessed, right? What right. So why would they about? try all these yeah. cases then? He's already confessed. Maybe they'll try and work a deal where they package it into the you know, the 120 years that he already got or 60 years, whatever, he's, he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life. And he's 54 years old. So, mm -hmm. you know, 
how long is the rest of his life? Maybe another 25 years, right? Crazy. All right, guys, you know, we're at an hour and almost 20 minutes. I always, at this part of the show, I always give each one of our uh, guests. Melanie, final thoughts. What a great show this was tonight. Thanks, you guys, for having me on. Uh, I think, uh, stay tuned. I think there's going to be a lot more Murdoch mystery to come. And um, hopefully we can come back and talk about it soon. Absolutely. You know, Melanie, you, you add such beauty to the ugliness <laughs> of us, too. Oh, <laughs> oh, maybe I should speak for myself. Mike didn't like that. Mike, final thoughts. <laughs> final thoughts. Uh, I think Melanie's right. There's, we're going to be hearing a lot more over the next for the next couple of years about all the little things that are revealed about the past that we haven't scr yet scratched the surface of. But I think uh, everyone should should feel confident that he's not going to get out on appeal. There's not going to be any dramatic, you know, reprieve or anything like that where he gets to try this all over again. So I think uh, he's in. He's in. They're going to lock the door, throw away the key. But uh, stay tuned for all of the other stuff. As Melanie said, it's all, it's all going to be great soap opera uh, information for the public. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for listening tonight. And, you know, stay tuned. This this drama that was the Murdoch case surely has not, uh, the last chapter has not been written. And we'll be following as, as new things come up. Guys, on behalf of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, I'm Bill Cannon. Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. One episode, just